Hello, and welcome to the podcast for East 11th Street Baptist Church in Jacksonville, Florida. I'm Jordan Messer, the pastor of East 11th, and I'm delighted you found our podcast. We hope the content here is an encouragement to you and pray the Lord uses it to bear fruit in your life. If you have questions about anything you hear today or would like to know more about following Jesus, you can find us on Facebook by searching for East 11th Street Baptist. And now, here's today's message. And then what a time of worship we've already experienced together. I know my heart has been so encouraged just singing with you and reading God's Word together. I'm going to invite you to take your Bible and open it with me, returning to the Gospel of Mark in the New Testament. The Gospel of Mark, as we have been walking through this Gospel, uh, walking with Jesus on the way to the cross, uh, on our way to Easter Sunday. We are following the ministry of the Lord Jesus uh, as he approaches his great passion, uh, learning about his teaching, his ministry, uh, and his mission of salvation to the world. We come this morning to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7 in the New Testament. It's amazing how quickly things can change. Uh, Dramatically without us even noticing. Some of us go throughout our lives and all of a sudden, hey, where'd that brand new big apartment building come from? Seemed like it came out of nowhere. (laughs) Things change, especially in a city like Jacksonville. You can go down a road, you go down every day and suddenly you'll see something new, something that wasn't there before. It's not because it just came out of nowhere, but we just weren't really paying that much attention until all of a sudden uh, there's a change and how we approach it. Well, here in Mark chapter 7, in our passage this morning, Lord willing, is going to take us all the way into chapter 8. We have something of a tectonic shift in God's kingdom. Something of a massive shift in the way people are to understand the mission of Christ. Yet it goes largely unnoticed by almost everyone. Here in this passage, Jesus blows open the doors of the kingdom. He expands the kingdom in ways that no one saw coming and ways that they were not prepared for. And it was largely missed. And this passage will confront us with this question. What could we be missing in seeing Jesus's vision for his kingdom where we are? Is our vision expanded to see what Christ is doing in our lives? Are there roadblocks? Are there impediments to to us seeing a vision for God's kingdom where we are? Let's look here. I want to read these opening verses. I'll not read all the way into chapter 8, but I do want you to get a sense of how this begins. In Mark chapter 7, look here beginning in verse 1. We're introduced to some familiar folks. 
The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, observing the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? Jesus said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother. And he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you is Corbin. That is to say, it is given to God. You no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Invalidating the word of God by your tradition. Which you have handed down. And you do many things such as that. After he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, listen to me, all of you and understand. There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. When he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and then it is eliminated. Thus, he declared all foods clean. And he was saying that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man for from within. Out of the heart of men proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Well, to begin this passage, we are confronted with once again the Pharisees they come to Jesus and are ready to trap him they come not to learn from Jesus but to ensnare him 
They are the opponents of Jesus throughout the Gospels. We know that. The Gospels never paint these folks in a positive light. And these questions prompt this radical new teaching from Jesus that really isn't new if we were to understand God's law properly. It's really a fulfillment of everything God had been telling them. These instructions here about the heart, that is the core of God's law. What is the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. If you do that, you can keep the law. If you do that, if you love God with all of your heart, you'll be putting him in first place in everything. The law was never meant as a way for us to earn a righteous standing before God. It was meant to show us what God is like and cast ourselves upon him and live in a way that is pleasing to him. That's what the law was given to do to Israel. But these Pharisees have done something a little different. They represent for us, as you read the Gospels, the religious establishment of that day. They were the religious elite. Now, there was not one uniform way to practice Judaism, to, to practice the Jewish faith in the day of Jesus. We see many different expressions of how people practice the Jewish faith. But the Pharisees were the dominant religious group in the time of Jesus. And this passage reveals for us the very heart of why they were so opposed to Jesus. It's because he was not one of them. He wasn't in their group. He didn't do things their way. He wasn't one of them. The disagreement they have is over ritual washings. Four times in that passage we read the word tradition is brought up and not in a positive way. Now, what's going on with these traditions? Here's what you need to understand about the Pharisees. You'll read your testament all day long. You won't come across the name Pharisee. They were not a... Uh, a particular office established by any Old Testament command. This group arose in what we call the intertestamental period. They arose because they were, they were a nationalist group of men very concerned about the plight of the Jewish nation. The Jewish nation, they felt like, was floundering in their faith. There was no real faith in God in the nation during this time. They felt like observance to God's law was not being practiced with fervent zeal. The nation was wayward and they had abandoned the ways of God in their view. And these men believed that if they could get the nation back on track, if they could instill in the people a zeal for God's law, a strict observance to God's law, 
that if they could just get people to do the right things according to the Torah, and of course when we're talking about God's law, we're talking about Genesis through Deuteronomy. If we could just get back to doing God's word, then God will send us deliverance. He will deliver us from our enemies. Uh, he will send us a new king, a new King David that had been promised in the Old Testament. They thought that in order for the kingdom of God to be ushered in and be delivered from the outside nations that were threatening them, they needed strict observance to God's law. And if they could make the nation righteous enough, God would send deliverance. So that's the plan. And they did this. In order to ensure that no one transgressed the Torah, no one transgressed God's law, they built a fence around God's law. They built a superstructure around it, saying if the people will obey and stay on the other side of this fence, then they won't even be close enough to the law to break it. You understand? And this fence, this superstructure, over time became so massive and so complex and so ingrained that it began to obstruct the very word of God. This fence is the tradition of the elders. The fence became so high and so insurmountable, you couldn't recognize the Bible behind it. And their zeal became their tradition. These traditions became boundary markers for them. Who is in and who is out. Now, if you don't know what boundary markers are, I can tell you this, you actually do know what they are, but they're often invisible to us. I remember once, many years ago, I was visiting the city of San Antonio, Texas, and I was at a restaurant in San Antonio, Texas, and I asked the waitress for a glass of sweet iced tea, and she could not have looked at me any different, like I was from another planet. Sweet, sweet tea, what are you talking about? I was like, you don't serve sweet tea here? I mean, this is Texas. We're in the South, aren't we? I did not realize I had crossed an invisible boundary outside of the deep South into another place. And sweet tea was not a thing that they made. She said she could make me some tea and then she could bring me that little artificial sweetener, you know, that they bring you to the table. Well, I think all God's people know that's just not the same thing as sweet tea. I had crossed an invisible <laughs> boundary marker. I remember uh, another situation. I, this happened to me the other day. I was walking into a store, an establishment somewhere, and I could tell there was a lady behind me. So when I opened the door, I stepped to the side and I let her go on in. I could not have been more invisible to this woman. Not a thank you, not a have a good one. Just waltzed herself right in and left me standing there. And I thought to myself, man, we are different people. 
That's just not how I was raised. I'm sure you can relate. These are boundary markers. It lets us know who's in and who's out. Because we do things this way. You do things that way. We're different. This is my in-group. That's your in-group over there. And these are just the way we do things. Boundary markers let you know who is in and who is out. Who is one of us and who is not. Well, Jesus doesn't meet their standards. So he's out. What they have done, Jesus says, though, is they've taken God's word and with their tradition, with their exclusionary boundary markers and their laws, they have invalidated the very purpose of God's word. He gives one example here of Corbin. That word just means given to God or devoted to God. Uh, this practice of giving money or property or, or whatever it is. The illustration is that this person's parents are in need. But they use this tradition of Corbin of donating something to the temple or donating something to God so they can keep the money for themselves without having to help their father or mother. So it's their way of getting around the command. They can say, sorry, mom and dad, I could sell this land or I could give you this money, but I've actually devoted it to God. All the while, it's still in their possession. It was a way to say the right thing. I'd like to honor you, but actually I've given it to God. But that practice invalidated the purpose of the entire command, Jesus says. Do you see how immoral and twisted this is? Breaking God's law and giving it a religious veneer. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, says Jesus. You say one thing with your mouth. And yet your heart is far from God. Here's the question each one of us need to ask. Is our religion keeping us from seeing God's kingdom? Now understand what I mean by religion. I don't mean faith in Christ. That's something different. I'm talking about your religion. Your boundary markers. The things that each of us have in our lives that identify who we are in comparison to others. Everyone is religious. Every atheist you meet is religious. They have something in which they put their faith and they have boundary markers that identify who they are and how they think society ought to be run. So I'm asking us Christians who claim that we believe the Bible, who claim that we know God, I'm asking us the same question. Is our religion keeping us from seeing God's kingdom? I hear a lot of wailing and gnashing of teeth from Christians all over the place today. There's a lot of religious talk about 
reclaiming America for God or making us a Christian nation once again. There is even a far right wing Christian nationalist movement in our country. And I see so many parallels between this movement and the Pharisees in this chapter that it scares me. Christian nationalism takes ideas that are good. Things like democracy, liberty, the idea that America has been blessed by God. Those are true things and those are good things. But it then builds a superstructure around it that crumbles the very ideas themselves. Nationalist governments divide people by hard line boundary markers, and they always, throughout history, end up privileging one class of people over another. You've already heard politicians in our own country talk about having a national divorce. That's nationalism. They talk about preserving a way of life that has more to do with who we keep out than who we let in. I think this is nothing but rank Phariseeism that is trying, clawing to preserve what it has built, to preserve its power and its status and its own privileges. Here's what's scary. It's difficult for us to see through this. Because it sounds righteous. Because part of it is appealing. You think it's the right cause. And yet it will invalidate the very principles it was meant to protect. Even Jesus' disciples didn't get it right away. This lesson didn't sink in with them immediately. They had to ask Jesus for clarification. What's going on? And in verses 14 to 23, which we read, Jesus has to overturn the very principle that the Jewish people were using to exclude others from God's kingdom. They excluded Gentiles because that's just what they did. Gentiles were unclean. Anyone who's not a Jewish person is a Gentile. We understand that. Gentiles, they're different. They don't do things like we do them. They eat the wrong food. They're pagans. And the thought was this. We will never reform this nation for God if we don't get rid of the godless Gentiles. There are many places in Israel in the time of Jesus where Gentiles and Jewish people were living in the same cities. That was an abomination to the Pharisees. We've got to get these Gentiles out of here. That's part of the tradition of the elders that the Pharisees are talking about. Not only these ritual washings and things like that, but if we, the Jews, are God's special people, if we are his chosen nation, then all of you non-Jews are dirty, mangy dogs. That's the tradition of the elders. 
That's how we're going to usher in a righteous nation. So Jesus takes them on a field trip. He's not going to let his disciples buy into this. He's going to teach them what God's kingdom is supposed to look like. He begins this field trip in verse 24. Jesus got up and went away from there to the region of Tyre. He goes into Gentile regions. The, this city, Tyre and Sidon, is, in the, is on the northern border of Israel. Now, it's just outside the border. It's Gentile territory. Okay? He takes them on a field trip. He goes, we're going to get out of here. I need to take you somewhere. And he goes into this Gentile territory. And many of us will be familiar with the story. He goes into a house. A woman comes to him who has a daughter who was possessed by a demon. Now look at verse 26. The woman was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race. And she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Now listen to what Jesus says. Remember what I just told you about the tradition of the elders. We're God's special people. You Gentiles are dogs. What does Jesus say? Let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Christians have been very concerned over this story, which is recorded here and over in the Gospel of Luke for us, because we look at Jesus's words and they sound very mean, don't they? He calls this woman a dog. He does it twice over in, in Luke's account of this story, and it sounds very unchristlike, doesn't it? He says, No, I'm not here to heal your daughter. I came to serve the Jewish people. You Gentiles are dogs. That's what he calls this woman. What's Jesus doing? He is responding to her according to the tradition of the elders. Because he's trying to show his disciples the truth about God's kingdom. But I love this woman. She doesn't let that dissuade her. She says, yes, Lord. I am a dog. I know I have no claim on your goodness. I know I'm on the outside. But even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. And he said to her, because of this answer. In other words, because of your faith. The demon has gone from your daughter. And sure enough, the demon had left in verse 30. This Gentile woman, not even living in the land of Israel, no claim on God's promises, has more faith than Jesus' own disciples at this point. Lesson number one. Verse 31, he went out from there. It came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee to the region of the Decapolis. That word Decapolis means ten cities. It's a region in where you've got Jews and Gentiles living together. Again, that's against the tradition of the elders. And here he heals a man who is deaf and he can't speak because he's deaf. He has speaking challenges. Jesus heals this man. His tongue is open and he began speaking plainly in verse 35 and in verse 36 he continues to proclaim the name of Jesus. This is a fulfillment of Isaiah 35. The deaf hear, the mute will speak and proclaim God's glory in Gentile country. And then 
Let your eye come here. Lesson number three, beginning in chapter eight. In those days, there was a large crowd and they had nothing to eat. Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the people because they've remained with me three days and have nothing to eat. Does this sound familiar to you? His disciples end up saying in verse four, we can't find enough bread for these people. Look what he says. We're in a desolate place. There's not enough bread here to satisfy these people. Didn't we just read this a couple of chapters ago? They're in a desolate place. There's this crowd of thousands of people. The disciples say, we don't have enough food. And yet here we go again. Verse 6, he directs the people to sit on the ground. He takes the loaves. He breaks them. He blesses them. They just begin serving. Verse 7, they have a few small fish. Verse 8, they all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up the baskets full of what was left over of the broken pieces. 4,000. A miraculous feeding in a desolate place. In Gentile country. If you look at verse 10. He entered the boat. And came to another district. Dalmanutha. He has another. Run in with the Pharisees. In verses 11 to 13. They're seeking for a sign. Apparently they've not been paying attention. No sign is going to be given. To these people with unbelieving hearts. Verse 13. He leaves them. And crosses the sea again. What's going on with these stories? This is not just curious historical data Mark is giving us. You've got miracles taking place in Gentile country. You have a miraculous feeding in the wilderness for Gentiles. You have a sea crossing in Gentile territory. This is a new exodus. Jesus is leading a new exodus for those who were considered outside the promises of God. The point of these stories is this. God's kingdom will not be bound by cultural identity. The gospel of Jesus Christ is amazing grace for every race. There is no class or socioeconomic status or divisions in heaven. The Bible reminds us that in heaven, in God's kingdom, are people from every tribe and every nation and every language, every tongue. They come to the end of this over here in verse 17. They're back out on the lake. And Jesus wants to make sure his disciples understand he told them you need to watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they think he's talking about actual real bread. Like, okay, did we forget to bring enough bread for us? And Jesus says, do you not see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? He says, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000... How many baskets were picked up? Twelve, Lord. 
Verse 20, when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets did you pick up? Seven, Lord. And he was saying to them, verse 21, do you not yet understand? God's kingdom is big enough for everyone. God has enough blessings for everyone. He has enough salvation for everyone. No one has to be left out of God's kingdom because of where they're from or who they are or what their background is. God's heaven is big enough for any who call upon the name of Jesus. But it takes a while for this to sink in. God love them. And God love us. It takes us a while to get it too. I know that because it's not until Acts chapter 10. Peter is staying at the house of Simon the Tanner in the city of Joppa. And he gets the vision uh, from heaven of, of all these unclean animals coming down on the sheep. And the Lord Jesus says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, no, Lord, no unclean food has ever entered my mouth. And he does this three times. Three times the Lord has to tell him, I'm making all things clean. I'm making, there's no such thing as clean and unclean food anymore. And Peter goes and he preaches at the house of Cornelius and the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles. And it finally sinks in all the way over in Acts chapter 10 that, wow, God wants to reach everybody with the gospel. This isn't limited just to us. There's nothing special about us because God wants to reach the whole world. And then some have wondered about this healing story that takes place in verses 22 to 26 there in chapter 8. They bring a blind man to Jesus and Jesus touches him. And there in verse 23 at the end, he says, do you see anything? And verse 24, the man says, I see men, but I see them like trees walking around. He's got partial vision. Jesus again laid his hands on his eyes, looked intently at him, and he was restored and began to see everything clearly. What's that about? We need to understand this, that without the healing touch of Christ, our vision for his kingdom will remain stunted. We won't see people as they really are and we'll miss what he wants to do in his kingdom. As Miss Sarah reminded us so passionately yesterday at our meeting, there are hurting people in this community. There are needy people in this community. People who weren't raised in church like you. People who weren't brought up like you. They're different. They're other. The question we have to ask ourselves is this. Am I holding on to man-made traditions that are blinding me to the mission of God for my life and for this church? Am I holding on to man-made religious traditions that are causing me not to see the mission of God. Churches can have all kinds of boundary markers that keep others away. And we can be blind to them. We like a certain style of music. 
Maybe that needs to change so that we can reach other people. We like a certain decor. We like things to look a certain way, a certain color of the carpet, whatever makes us feel at home. But maybe that's not welcoming to others. We ourselves individually have our own boundary markers that lets people know whether they're in or out. Do they vote a certain way? Do they dress a certain way? Do they have a cultural identity that we don't understand? And we can allow things like that to divide us. Now, you and I, we, we may not see how that could hinder someone from from coming to Christ, but that's just it. We don't see. We have to ask Jesus to give us eyes to see and to give us the vision of his kingdom so that we can see. That's why I'm so excited about this season we're walking into as a church approaching Easter over six weeks. As we fast and pray, asking the Lord for vision so that we can see what he wants from this church in his kingdom. Would you pray with me? Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. Just going to lead you in a brief meditation. We'll not tarry long here. If you're here this morning and you need to follow Christ, you've been on the outside. But faith in Christ is what's needed to come in. To believe on him, to receive forgiveness. Christ is not excluding anyone who calls upon his name. If that's you, even sitting right there this morning, you can be saved by confessing your sin, turning from your sin and placing your trust in Christ. Others of us here this morning, we can feel those divisions in our heart as our society becomes more and more divided. Don't buy into it, folks, because your identity is first a citizen of God's kingdom. We seek first the kingdom of God. And he'll take care of the rest. Would we as a church ask the Lord to show us where we might be hindered in our mission so that we can remove barriers? And get a real vision for God's kingdom here at East 11th Street. Lord, we thank you for these truths. We thank you.